listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston, and this is episode number 69. Today is November 14th, 2020, and I'm doing things a little differently. I'm going back to the old school model just for this one time. For a while now, I've been doing live streams on YouTube. I've been doing the podcast live with a with an audience, if you've been listening, a listener for any amount of time, you're probably getting familiar with some of the folks that show up and interact on the live stream. It's been a lot of fun. Unfortunately, uh, I typically do this on Sunday, but unfortunately tomorrow I'm not going to be able to get in front of the camera. And I thought, you know what? I love my audience. I really love you guys. I'm grateful for you. And I don't want to just skip doing a show. And I had something on my mind that I thought this might be better to share just as kind of a, a, a short audio monologue and the old school kind of um, podcast uh, tradition. So we're going back to our roots. We're going back to our podcast roots. It's just me in front of a mic, hunkered down in a nice, warm room in, in Gaston Manor on a dark, cold November night in upstate New York. But today I want to talk to you about uh, progressivism at war. It's today's topic. It's episode number 69, and it's progressivism at war. And this will be a quick one, but I, I, I want you to stick around only because I think this is going to be really surprising. Now, you might hear me talk about progressivism at war and say, oh, here goes Mike. He's a conservative. He's just going to slag the progressives and talk about how crappy their ideology is and so on. And although I do think that progressive ideology is crappy, that's not what I'm going to talk about today. I think you're going to be surprised at where this goes. So stick around. But to that point, you know, we hear the word progressivism and you hear this title progressivism at war. And, and we tend to think of right versus left where we envision, we kind of get in our minds this, I, this mental uh, map evoked of the, of the landscape of the society we, we live in, the, the right versus the left, the conservatives versus the liberals or the progressives. The, uh, in America, it's the Republicans versus the Democrats. We think of these polar opposite sides, these two teams that have different values, different visions, different ways that they envision society and mankind and the ordering of, uh, of nations should, should, should look like and how it should go. These polar opposites. And this isn't just unique to America. I mean, this is something that is commonplace across the globe right now. If you're listening to this, it doesn't matter where you are. You are in the midst of this battle. You are caught up in this war. You are embattled. You are surrounded. You are enmeshed in this conflagration between these seemingly two sides. But what I want to point out today and what I think you might actually have, you may even have trouble agreeing with me, but I want to make the case for today is that the battle that we're finding ourselves in, the, the cities burning, the people demonstrating, marching in the streets, whether they're peaceful demonstrations or violent, which there are both happening, whether they are right-wingers coming out for Trump rallies or BLM activists arm-in-arm uh, arm with Antifa burning down Minneapolis, these are not necessarily two sides at war, but rather two animating visions of progressivism. My argument today, the thing that I want to communicate to you and, and hopefully spark some thought and get, get you to start thinking about, which is hard. I, I, there's constant, there, there's um, 
there's cognitive dissonance with this, sorry, cognitive dissonance with this, because you may find yourself on one side or the other, and you might view the other side as opposite to you, light versus dark, left versus right, conservative versus progressive, Republican versus Democrat, you know, whatever, whatever political parties you have in, in whatever country you, you hail from. You think of them as opposites, but what I have come to believe, what I've come to, to understand is that, that really what we understand to be the right and what we understand to be the left are two of the same thing. And the war, progressivism's war, is actually a war between two visions, animating ideas, fighting for control over what progressivism is, should be, and will become. There are two animating visions, animating visions for the world. But these are not, this is not a conservative vision versus a progressive vision. These are two progressive visions that are at war with one another to see who will win. Well, how can I say that? How can I claim that what we say is conservatism today is actually progressivism? You know, like a fish in the water, the fish doesn't know it's in water. It's just going about its business. It's getting its oxygen through its mouth and gills. There's a process. It's just breathing the water, swimming around in the water, floating in the water, finding its food in the water. It doesn't know it's in water. The fish doesn't pray to God every day and say, thank you for this water. I'm grateful for it. At least we don't think that fish do. It's unaware of the water. Another analogy uh, would be Plato's cave. Maybe you've heard of this Plato's cave, but Plato, the philosopher said, in effect, you know, what if you had, he, he, he theorized, what if you had people that never saw the light of day? They lived in a cave. They were born in a cave. They'd never seen anything other than a cave. And in the cave behind them was a fire. And that fire would glow on the, from behind them onto the wall in front of them. So they're looking at a wall in front of themselves and behind them is a fire. And that would create a glow on the, on the cave wall, almost like we would imagine like a movie theater, like a projector behind you on the movie screen. And, and people behind these individuals in the cave might walk in front of the fire. And so what the cave dwellers would see on the wall would be the shadows of men and women walking back and forth. They might see a horse go by. They might see a wagon go by. They would see these various things as shadows on the wall in front of them. But if they lived in the cave their whole life, they'd never seen the light of day. They never saw another human being. They never saw a horse in the flesh. They never saw any of these things in their fullness, in their complexity and with dimension and facets to them. If they just saw the shadows on the wall, they would think that the things that they are seeing are the actual things and not just very simple, crude representations of the things. And I think we find ourselves in a similar situation to the fish in the water or to the dwellers in Plato's cave. And that we're just so immersed in something. We've never really seen outside that thing that what we think we're looking at is one thing when really it's something else. A shadow of a man is not a man. It's something else. It's a shadow of a man. And you can know and understand that shadow, that's a thing. It's not fake, but it's certainly not a man. And I think we're sitting here in society thinking that we're seeing conservatism versus progressivism when really what we're seeing is 
a battle between two animating visions of progressivism. Let me explain more specifically what I mean by that. Let's talk about the word progressivism. Its root is progress. The, fun, the kind of animating idea really behind the word progressivism is this idea of progress, of moving forward. Now, there was a time in mankind's history where, where things really didn't progress forward. We kind of take it on faith that we're moving forward. But that was not always the case. Certainly pre-Christianity, the, the concept of history was not this arc moving in a direction towards an endpoint. Christianity kind of introduced this idea that, that mankind is on a path moving towards an end. You know, the Christian faith teaches this, this age of the end, this apocalyptic uh, passage where everything is just chaos and destroyed. Christ comes back, grabs his own. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Christ sitting on the throne and this going forward, this kind of eternal bliss, this heaven, this, this state of perfection after it all ends. But history is moving towards this moment of Christ's return and, and the establishment, the full establishment and, and realization of his kingdom. That, that was part of the Christian faith. But before that, mankind didn't think in terms of a straight line for history, that we weren't moving towards anything. It was more like the life cycle. Things were born, they grew, they, th- they thrived, they, they uh, waxed. They became strong, and then they started to wane, and they died. And the cycle just repeated itself. Just history would repeat itself. That's kind of how the ancients viewed history. It wasn't going anywhere. It would just repeat itself in these naturalistic cycles. Now, I'm not blaming Christianity for progressivism. I'm just saying that mankind didn't always embrace the concept of progress as as an inevitability. It wasn't until Christianity and then later the Enlightenment that mankind started to embrace this idea that we are moving forward and we can move forward by our own hand. The Enlightenment, and especially the work of Adam Smith economically, helped unlock, unleash this idea that we could create unlimited wealth, that we could create unlimited improvement, that we could create growth and alleviate human suffering and elevate more people than ever was imagined before, and that this would never stop, that this would keep going. This is Smith and his free markets. And essentially why I say that's what what he realizes, Smith and some of his contemporaries realized something. You see, before Smith, it was assumed that desire was a bad thing, that acquisitiveness, wanting to acquire more, was actually a vice it was not considered good to want to go outside of your station in life. If you were born poor, then you were supposed to embrace being poor, know your role, be faithful to it, and get on with it. And if you were born wealthy, well, good for you. You're supposed to embrace that role. And, and each, each role had responsibilities to society. I'm not, I, by the way, I want to be clear. I'm not advocating for these things. I'm just trying to paint a picture here. Um, th- this isn't leading to me saying we need to go back to, to the medieval ages, because that's when it was really swinging kids. I'm not saying that. But, but it was assumed back then that, that, that desire and, 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 and desires and wants and appetites and equivitiveness were vices. These were not good things. And what, and what Adam Smith and some of his contemporaries understood was that actually desire can be a very powerful engine for, for creating wealth. Because when you say, look, 
People should be allowed to fulfill their desires. What happens is you create a market. You create a true market. When someone's like, I want, I want a sub sandwich. I want a hoagie, a grinder, depending where you live. I want a, I want a sub sandwich. In the old world, you, you couldn't just go out and buy that necessarily. But today you can go get that in a Coke, chocolate chip cookie, some, some, a bag of chips, Maybe you want to get a new iPhone. Maybe you want to watch a movie. Maybe you want to get a new car. I and mean, there's just so many things. I mean, the, 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 we're able to acquire so many things. Any desire you have in this world, most mostly, you can fulfill. Now, there are some desires that are illegal. Society said, "Hey, we don't, you know, we don't want people just shooting LSD and then running around the streets." Uh, there's some things that are illegal. Society frowns on. There's some things that are just outright immoral that we say no. Uh, you're not, you know, but but. In general, in general terms, you can fulfill almost any desire you have. And, and things that used to be considered luxuries have kind of transcended or transformed into necessities. Talk to a parent today and say, oh, you should not get your kid a smartphone. That $800 phone, that, that, that your kid doesn't need it. And the parent will tell you, I, I beg to disagree. I, I think this is a necessity today. It's just assumed that you have to have it. And if my kid doesn't have it, I don't know if they're going to be safe. I won't be able to coordinate uh, transportation and events and so on. And uh, worse than all that is my kid is just going to give me grief for years because they're going to be the only kid out of a couple thousand kids in their school that doesn't have a smartphone. I mean, it's just going to be miserable. So, so what is truly a luxury? You can't argue that a smartphone is truly a human necessity, but what is truly a luxury has become a necessity. Smith, in doing this, has unlocked unthinkable wealth creation. You know, free markets and, and its associated capitalism have lifted more people out of poverty than any other driver in human history. There's so much talk around inequality and, and uh, racism and bigotry and all these wealth inequities and all this kind of stuff. But, but sometimes we need to just stop for a minute and think like, you know, the system that we have has created unthinkable wealth for most all of us, most all of us. I've yet to see anybody in America in my time born into a family who is relegated to being stable hands for some wealthy lord on his property and are treated like chattel property and don't have the right to own property, don't have the right to go get a different job, don't have access to education or even an indoor toilet. Now, we like to talk about how bad people have it. And some people have it bad. I'm not going to soft pedal this. I'm not trying to tell you that, hey, this is a, a pitch for conservative uh, free market principles or capitalism. I'm just saying sometimes you got to look something in the eye and, and just be honest about it. Our systems created unthinkable wealth, not just America, but the West and Adam Smith's free markets have created unthinkable wealth. And what's happened is in our current political situation and our societal situation, we've associated this free market ideology, this free market economics with conservatism, with the right. But the fact is Adam Smith was a father of progressive thinking. That's, a re that's the reason why they refer to free market guys as classical liberals. Ever hear that term, classical liberal? Oh, I'm a classical liberal. 
that doesn't mean you're like an old school college professor <laughs> who likes to wear tweed and, and smoke pot back in the 70, 60s and 70s and listen to the Beatles. That's not classical liberalism. Classical liberalism is free market economics and individualism, democracy. I mean, these are the things that are classically liberal, free speech, private property. These are all liberal. Why do they call it classical liberal? Because back in Smith's day, that stuff was not allowed. You were liberating people. You were giving the individual freedom. It, it was the beginning of progressivism, this idea of progress forward. How can we get society to move forward as opposed to this stultifying, stupefying, just status quo under the monarchy that, that you just weren't allowed to move station life. You weren't allowed to acquire uh, or uh, to try to acquire. It was just this generation after generation after generation of no change. People lived, they got married, they had children, they worked, they died. That was it for, for centuries. That was mankind's experience. And so as we like to think of this as right-wing, left-wing, conservatism versus uh, progressivism, the truth of the matter is that free markets, individual liberties, free speech, owning private property, the right to own arms, I mean, the right to own to bear arms, like the, only the king and his men could bear arms. You got caught with a sword and you weren't a, a landed gentry, you were not an aristocrat, you didn't have the right to own that sword, you were going to prison back in the day. So the idea that all these things are available to anybody, the right to vote, these are all very progressive ideas. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, but that's relative. That was progressive yesterday, but now it's conservative today. But here's the animating idea behind this. And the animating idea is that if we can allow people to fulfill their desires, we can create never-ending progress, never-ending improvement. And this is where the war happens. You see, in progressivism, early progressives had a vision of creating a secular version of heaven on earth. They initially thought if we could use science and logic and you know what we're learning through the Enlightenment and so on, we can create the perfect society. We can create utopia. They were inspired by the Christian concept of heaven, but they said, we don't need religion. Religion's not for us. We, we believe in a materialistic, naturalistic world. We've got science and the laws of nature. There's nothing that the mind of man cannot uh, discover and figure out. And so we're going to use all these powers that we have. And these are people back in the, in the 17th and 18th century. This is not just recent. This has been going on for hundreds of years since the birth of the Enlightenment. But we can create a heaven on earth. That is one of the animating visions of progressivism. But the other animating vision was this vision that Adam Smith kind of created, which is this idea that we can create nonstop, never-ending improvement through the fulfillment of human desire. If we allow the markets to fulfill desire, then we can create untold wealth. It just doesn't stop. And that untold wealth will allow us to, to solve more and more problems, allow us to live better, more luxurious lives, and, and that will allow us just to continually improve. Now, when you look at these two concepts, you can see modern-day people like that. For instance, a, a guy like Elon Musk would be this more never-ending, improvement kind of guy. He's embraced free markets. He's embraced technologies and great embraced progress. Like Musk is like, there's nothing we can't figure out, but he's not trying to create heaven on earth. 
Elon Musk is not trying to create a sinless world. He's not trying to make sure that everything's fair for everybody. He's not worried that every racial group gets a gets the same piece of pie. He's not worried that every religious group is protected or 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 whatever. He's just trying to say we can continue to improve. We can make people faster and smarter. We can weld technology into your brain, give you a wire so that you can think faster than a computer. We can put you on a colony on Mars. We can give you space travel. I mean, there's all this stuff that that Musk is just like, we can do it. He is a perfect modern day example of the never ending improvement progressive. That's his vision. Elon Musk is not a conservative. He's a progressive with the vision of never ending improvement. On the other side of the aisle, you have people that are social justice warriors that are insisting that we have fairness, economic equality, that we have a quality of outcome, that people don't say things that are bad, that, that people can choose whatever sex they want to be and that everybody else has to agree and call you by whatever you know, pronoun, gender pronoun you prefer, that if you get pregnant, you don't have to have that baby, you just get rid of it. They want to create this utopia of perfection where people can live a perfect life in, in full happiness and bliss, this kind of secular heaven-like situation where everything is wonderful. There's never a tear. There's no pain. There's no sin. And when I say sin, I mean secular sin, the secular sin of wrong think, wrong speech, wrong behavior, wrong desires, wrong attitudes, this this hyper-political correctness where everything is fair, everybody has equal, everybody's good, it's perfect. And you have these two and, and this would be like your social justice warriors. This would be your Black Lives Matter. This would be your, uh, I, you know, your, your Marxists. This, you know, this would be your Antifa. The people that want to rip down the society and build a more perfect, wonderful society. These are the same people that want to destroy the institutions, things like marriage, the academy, uh, you know, religious groups, civic groups, et cetera. They want to get rid of nationhood. They want to get rid of all this stuff. They want a global, beautiful, happy, secular utopia. And so the war that's happening right now is not right versus left. It's not conservatism versus progressivism. It is a war between these two animating visions within progressivism the fact is we are all progressives, whether we realize it or not. We look to technology to solve our problems. We assume the world's going to get better no matter what. We assume that free markets can solve almost every problem. We, we, we just assume that science and medicine and, and everything's just going to continue to proceed forward. And we're seeing this terrible battle between these two visions it seemed like for quite a while in the 80s and 90s that the idea of a secular utopia, heaven on earth, had died out, that, that that concept just faded away. But magically, here we are in 2020, and it has come back with a vengeance. A, 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 there's a very strong wave of support and energy behind this idea of creating a utopia on earth. And so that is the battle that we find ourselves in. Now, the reason I think that this matters is that both concepts are unworkable. You'll hear me often criticize the heaven on earth progressives. I've never used that phrase before. But the utopians, 
And it's easy to do that because you can say, well, gee, I, I can see why this isn't good. Like if people aren't allowed to think their own thoughts, if people aren't allowed uh, to, to, like if they work really hard to keep, you know, to have personal property, if people are afraid to walk the streets for being mobbed, for wearing the wrong clothing or having the wrong opinion. Nobody wants to live in that world. I mean, sure, there's a, there's a group of people that, that there's the mob that loves it, but nobody else wants to live in that world. Nobody wants to see their city burned down. Nobody wants to see a part of their city just taken over by radicals, people getting raped and shot at night and police aren't allowed to come in and fires burning. And meanwhile, people are holding concerts and selling drugs. And it's just like, it's anarchy. Nobody wants that. And nobody wants the top-down kind of government that wouldn't be necessary for a utopia. I mean, George Orwell wasn't that wrong. Uh, on Ron... Ayn, Ayn Rand. I always say, I always want to say Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand wasn't that wrong in some of the kind of fictional futures that they created. C.S. Lewis was another one. They, they perceived where this stuff leads. So it's, it's easy for a lot of us to look at this and say, I don't want it. This loss of liberty. The only way that you can make everybody equal is to strip everybody of their freedom. If you're listening to this and you make a good income, and you're embracing this idea of a quality of outcome, you need to stop and think for a minute. How is that going to happen? The only way you can have a quality of outcome is by not letting some people do as well as they could. You, 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 never, you never level up. It, you know, you, any of us that have sat in a classroom, the class never levels up to the highest level. You always have to go down to the slowest, lowest person. You know, if you're trying to read a passage out loud in, in grade school as a kid, you have to slow down for the freaking kid that can't seem to read while everybody waits for them to get through that paragraph. It's painful. Now, look, that kid needs to, to learn. I'm not, I'm not against that kid having the opportunity to learn, but that's if you take that on a global stage, there's no way to have equality without stripping everybody of their freedom. All right, I'm beating that, that, uh, that dead horse too much here. So we can see where loss of human liberty is not good. We've seen it in other societies. We've seen it in Cuba and Soviet Russia and China where loss of liberty is not good. It's dehumanizing. But on the other side, the free market is dehumanizing too because a system based on the fulfilling of unfettered desires, unfettered human desires doesn't lead to a very good place either. Now, historically, we've tried to moderate that on the right, the free market, by domesticating those desires, meaning we encourage people to get married, have a family, buy a house, so that they would put those desire energies into caring for their family. I want to make sure my kids do well. I want to buy a bigger house. We get a nicer car. We want to take vacations. I want to get you know everybody with good clothing. And you know, we invest that that energy, that acquisitiveness into the, the flourishing of our family. That was the way that that system tried to do that. But what we've done in this war, a casualty of this war of progressive, in the midst of progressivism is we've destroyed the family. We've completely dismantled the family. Divorce rates, we can't, we can't seem to get married. People aren't even getting married anymore. People aren't even having kids anymore. And that's not to get down on anybody that's either been through a divorce or you know hasn't had children. I'm not... I'm not this isn't a personal attack. This is a societal view. 
But the very thing that we use to moderate human desire and to focus it into something productive, well, that's being destroyed. It's unraveling. And you couple that with extreme individualism and a, a, a material world that's like out of control. You can get anything you want these days. It's kind of crazy. It's an amazing thing. Look, it's, it is amazing. But when you unravel the very thing that moderated and focus those energies in a way that was relatively virtuous, I think you've got trouble. Now, I don't necessarily have an answer for this. I'm not saying like, well, I'm out. I'm going to go medieval. You know, I'm, I'm just going to become a, 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 you know, I'm going to learn how to be an iron smith and just, uh, you know, have my little hut with a grass roof and bellows and learn to bang a, a hammer and make horseshoes. <laughs> I, I don't think we can go back there. But I, I just want you to be thinking about the fact that we've been told we're in a certain kind of war, it's right versus left, but the fact is we are all progressives and there are fundamental flaws with both sides. Both sides have, have the seeds of, of, of dehumanization in them. And we are paying the price for this. Now, I think there are things worth fighting for. I'm not saying, hey, you should tune in, drop out. There are things worth fighting for. And I do believe on both sides, you know, some sides have, uh, some, one side I think has embraced more darkness than other. You know that about me. You listen to the podcast. You know what my thoughts are and stuff like that. So I'm not going to hide that. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think either side has got it figured out. There's, a, there's, a, there's something missing in all of this. And partially for me, that is the transcendent. There's more to this life than this material world that we live in. There's more to this life than acquisitiveness. There's more to this life than just uh, making, you know, everything fair and, and so that everything's just. There's more to this life than that. What kinds of people are we becoming? How, how human are we? Are we becoming what we were destined to be? That doesn't necessarily have to be a progress question. That doesn't mean are we evolving into something. What kind of human beings are we? And what things have we embraced that help propel us towards reaching our full potential as human beings? And what things have we embraced that are stripping us of our humanity? I think there's a pathway forward. I really do. I think there's a workable pathway forward. I don't think that there's a perfect answer in this life, but I think there's a workable pathway forward. And so I hope that you consider this. I, I wish I had a bigger and here's what you should do answer. I don't have that. I know for me, my faith in Christ is paramount. For me, I have to turn to Christ. I have to turn to him, his teachings, his life, his death, his resurrection, and what that means for me both personally and for the, the society that I'm a part of, I have to look to him because for me, he is the truth. And I don't mean for me, I don't mean that in a postmodern way. For me, he's the truth. He's my truth. He is the truth. And, and that's, that's what I do. I look to him. But like for the average person just listening, you know, if you're a believer, I would encourage you to do that, to, to turn him. I mean, I, I'm not saying, you know, eschew your political party or, you know, drop out. I'm not saying that. I think we need to be engaged like I said, I think there are things worth fighting for. We have to fight for the light. We have to fight for a way for mankind and society and humanity to, to go forward in a way that's sustainable. I don't mean go forward in a progress. Since I mean just be able to continue to live, to have the room and space to thrive. 
But that said, uh, if you're a believer, I think you have to look to Christ. And I don't think we have been well enough. I can't speak for you, but I look at the the world we're living in, and I don't think we have been well enough. And if you're not a believer, I would encourage you to to, uh, to maybe investigate the faith. Uh, I don't know what else to tell you. I, th- I think there are some economic models. I think there's some historical models. You know, uh, populism, uh, not demagoguery, but kind of a classical populism, a classical republicanism. These are some systems and approaches that that did work in the past, they could work going forward. I need to do more exploration personally uh, to, to understand them better and to understand the, their viability in a world that, uh, that we live in now. But that said, I would encourage you, just think about this. Think about the concept of progress and think about the dehumanizing aspects and the troublesome aspects of founding um, you know, one vision on this un, unending uh, fulfillment of, of, of desire. And an and, and unrequited desire just never ends. Uh, so continual progress based on the fulfillment of, of never-ending desire. And on the other side, this idea of creating uh, a secular heaven on earth where people have to be stripped of their abilities, their desires, their, um, their motivations, their, their work, their freedom, their liberty, so that we can have a fair, equal uh, society one that's been brought down to such a level uh, that it creates widespread human misery and dehumanization. Guys, as always, I am grateful for your time. I'm grateful that you listen to this podcast. I do think we live in trying times. I want to encourage you that although sometimes the topics might be heavy or my mood might be heavy, There's so much good to live for, so much good to be thankful for. And I hope that in your life, you are able to spend some time just reflecting on those things that are good and great and wonderful. And uh, I will look forward to seeing you guys in the next episode. Just remember one thing. uh, I love you all. Okay, take care.